Good morning. This morning's reading is from Ezra chapter 9. Um, you can follow it in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the word of, words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sons, because of our sins, we are now kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary, and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us a new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, and he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and give it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it none of us can stand in your presence. All right, let's dig into that passage, friends. Um, Throughout life, the... The kind of things that you take seriously, the the things that are really important to you, they change, don't they? So when I was a kid, I used to have this uh, book. uh, And in in the book, I used to keep a scorecard of every test cricket match that Australia played. Um, And so I'd have to sit there in front of the TV and, and fill in all the details as it happened. And I took it pretty seriously, but let's be honest... It didn't really matter much if I missed something or if I got something wrong, right? What were the consequences if that happened? Well, virtually nothing at all. 
But as you grow up, it does begin to matter if you take something seriously or not, right? So at uni, I, I needed to take my classes seriously. Well, let's be honest, at least a little bit seriously, because if I failed, I could always come back next year and try them again, right? But then, you know, after uni, you, might, you, go, you, go, you go and you get a job, right? And if you mess up your job, it's unlikely that you get a second crack at it, do you? Or friendships. You know, when you're in primary school and um, you fall out with a friend, say, it, it kind of, it's, it's not very fun for a little bit, but eventually you, you kind of make new friends because at primary school, everyone wants to be a friend. But then you kind of get a bit older and say you're in your 30s and your 40s, you had, say you've had a lifelong friend. By the time you're 30 or 40, if you fall out with that friend, the consequences are much bigger, aren't they? You feel it for a lot longer. When you grow up, it matters what you take seriously, what you invest in, what's important to you. Because often the consequences of your decisions are bigger than. Here at church, we're going to go through the book. We we are. We're going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It covers the history of the Jewish people. We're in kind of thinking uh, history. We're in like the four and five hundreds BC. At this point, Israel, the, the, the Jews have just come back into their land after they'd spent some time in exile in Babylon. And today we're going to see these ancient Jews, what they did and what they took seriously. And as we look in on them, we're kind of forced to ask this question, do we need to take the same thing seriously as they did? Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Ezra, so let's start just by getting our bearings a bit again. Uh, We've already been through the first six chapters of Ezra. We saw in these chapters the first group of Jewish exiles returned from Babylon into the land. They were led by a guy called Zerubbabel. If you're looking for a great kid's name, there you go. Um, They went back to rebuild the temple of the Lord, and it took some time, but eventually they did it. And chapter 6 ended really well. People... Um, were celebrating, they were honouring and praising God. Today we hit chapter 7. We're going to do chapter 7 to 10 today. And it's like a fast forward. Chapter 6 ends and it's fast forward 57 years to to where chapter 7 starts. But back then in chapter 6, Darius was the king over, over the Persian Empire. Now his grandson, Artaxerxes, is the king. When chapter 6 ended, we were in Jerusalem, but now we're transported back to Babylon in chapter 7. And actually, we finally meet Ezra now, after after whom the book is named. Ezra is a Jew. He is still living in Babylon. He hasn't returned back to Jerusalem just yet. And we learn a lot about him in chapter 7. We learn that he's from a priestly family. So he he was also a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. He had uh, devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. And the king, Artaxerxes, he must have known this about Ezra. Because he sends Ezra back to Jerusalem, back to Judah. He's going to take another group of Jews back to the land. And when he goes there, the king tells Ezra that he's got some things to do. So this is from chapter 7, verse 25. This is what the king says to Ezra. He says, and you, Ezra... In accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates to judge and administer justice to the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any 
who do not know them. See, Ezra's going back here. And what is his purpose? To be a teacher of God's law. That's the background. And now we kind of we'll work our way through Ezra chapter 9, which Annalise just read out for us. By this stage, by Ezra chapter 9, Ezra has been back in the land for about four and a half months. And he seems like he spent most of the time doing what he was meant to do. He's there teaching the Jewish people to follow the law of God. Because that's when a problem becomes apparent. See, the people have been hearing Ezra teach and they realize, oh no, we have done something wrong. So look at chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. And this is explained further in verse 2. Says they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. And have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. What is the problem here? It, it is interracial marriage. The Jews have been marrying foreign people. And it seems that God does not like this. There is a show on TV called The Man in the High Castle. It's based on a book that was written in the 60s. And it's all about, you know, what if World War II had ended differently? What if instead of the Allies winning the war, what if, what if Germany and Japan had won the war? What if they were in charge now? And so it imagines a whole world under the power of these two nations. If you're wondering, Australia has become part of the greater Jap Japanese empire. Uh, but most of the action happens in the US, which has been divided between the, the Nazis over to the east and um, Japan to the west coast. And in the middle, there's this little neutral zone where basically anything goes. It's anarchy. Uh, one, of the, one of the things this show explores is racism. And it's probably not a big surprise, is it? Because the Nazis, they wanted racial purity. This was a big part of, of, of their doctrine. And if you weren't the right race, well, that was not good for you. Perhaps the passage we've been reading from Ezra brings up some of the worst ideas about God. That he's kind of like a Nazi. Right? He's a racist. He's against interracial marriage. What did it say? He said that God wants a holy race one that's not mixed with others. Is that what we're seeing here about God? Because if it is, then surely God is not actually worth believing in, is he? You'll be glad to hear, I'm sure, that God is not a Nazi. Um, because this is actually not about race at all. This is about religion. And religious practices. You see, when I read out chapter 9 verse 1 before, I kind of fudged it a little bit. <laughs> Don't do that with the Bible. But I kind of fudged it a bit. Uh, this is what I read out. I read that the Jews had not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. But there's actually more to the verse. It, it reads fully. It reads that they had not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. 
And that is the problem. It's their, their religious practices. It's what they do to serve their gods because it's detestable. It includes things like sorcery and divination, sexual sin and sexual slavery, and child sacrifice. This is not nice stuff, friends. And besides that, it also involved idolatry and people turning, not serving the true and living God anymore. Can you see from it why God did not want his people to marry these foreigners? It has nothing to do with being a racist. He, but, but, but God would not have his people be involved in the evil that they were doing. You know, actually, God has no problem with interracial marriage. So the law came from God to the people through Moses. And do you know who was married to a foreigner? Moses. The issue here isn't about race. It is about religion and religious practice. And if a foreigner accepted the God of the Jews, they were to be treated like a Jew, as one of God's people. Let's be very clear on this, friends. God is not a racist. But he will not have his people being involved in evil. When we read the Old Testament today, we're often told, you know, we need to keep looking forward to Jesus and how Jesus shapes the way we understand the Old Testament and how he fulfills what's promised and how, how we might live out this in light of Jesus, in light of what he's done. And that's right. We do need to read the Old Testament with our Jesus glasses on. But also, we need to read our Old Testament in light of what has already happened in the Old Testament. You see, by Ezra's time, there'd been about a thousand years or more of, of Jewish history. And that impacts the way that the people back then would have understood Ezra. Try and put yourselves, if you can, in the shoes of those Jews there in Ezra's time. You've recently come back from exile. And you know that exile happened because it was God's punishment on the nations. Your people had forgotten about God and ignored him and just pushed him to the fringes and, and, and did what he said not to do. A Jew who was living in Ezra's time would be familiar with the Old Testament and, and could trace some of this stuff back to a king like Solomon. Now, Solomon was the third king of the Israelite nation. And in some sense, he was a great king. He was wise, and he used his wisdom to rule the nation justly. Solomon was also rich, and, and he didn't just keep that all to himself. He built beautiful things with his money. He even built the first temple to God. And, and Solomon was a godly guy, right? He led the people to honor their God until, that is, he didn't. This is how... One of the books of the Bible talks about Solomon's reign as king. 1 Kings chapter 11 says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 7 
hundred wives of royal birth and three hundred concubines, and his wives led him astray. It is not that Solomon stopped worshipping God. It's just that he started to worship other gods as well. And if we kept on reading in 1 Kings, we would have seen this happen. How his heart was turned to these other gods. How he built places where these other gods could be worshipped. And where they could do these evil so-called religious practices. No doubt Solomon was involved with that as well. And so Solomon stands in Israelite history as a great warning sign saying, look what can happen. Beware. And Ezra, many years later, hears the reports of what's happening in his time. And how does he respond to it? Seeing this same thing happen again. Chapter 9, verse 3. Ezra writes, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down, appalled. Ezra is in mourning over the sin of his people. It devastates him. It causes him pain. And so he turns to God And he prays. Annalise read out the prayer of Ezra earlier. Did you notice Ezra just doesn't try to explain the sin away. He doesn't try to hide it or minimize it. He doesn't even try to make a deal with God. God, if you just give us a little bit more time, I'm sure we'll do better soon. He just openly pours his heart out. This is what we've done, God. And it's serious. Look at how he ends the prayer in verse 15. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Friends, sin is serious. The Jews have already seen what it led to in their history. The exile sent away from the presence of God. And now they're at it again. And they're left in the hands of a righteous God. This is a perilous situation to be in. So what do they do? Well, as Ezra is there praying and confessing, someone comes to him with a suggestion. In chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, this this guy says, you know, Ezra, we have sinned, but there's still hope for us. You know, we need to repent. We need to send these foreign wives and their children away. So Ezra and the leaders, they gather together all the Jews that have returned from exile. They're all in Jerusalem. And it's a somber occasion, perhaps fittingly like today. It's raining there. And Ezra puts the plan to the people. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. He says, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You've been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now, honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. 
And the Jews agree to this. But they don't want to be hasty. So they say, you know, yes, our sin is serious. So let's do this right. Let's get some people to do a proper investigation before we send anyone away. And so they appoint some people to do that investigation. They, and these guys spend three months doing it. And then they come up with a list of people who've married foreign women. And if you have the full Bible, you can see at the end of chapter 10, that's what we've got, the list of these people. Now, again, though, we might be hearing this and we think, well, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? This is a bit problematic, you know. How can you just send away a bunch of women in the ancient world along with their children? What's going to happen to these people? Ezra doesn't actually tell us what happens. Um, so we can speculate. Some of them probably went back to their home nations, back to their families. Some of them probably stayed in Israel, perhaps went to a different town in Israel. And if that happened, they were supposed to be treated well. That's what the law said, to treat the foreigner well. Perhaps some whole families, husbands, wives and children, left Israel together. We do know that four people opposed this plan in chapter 10, verse 15. Perhaps there was also, though, conversion to Judaism, that, that some of these foreign wives and children converted to become Jews, and so the family stayed together. But, but that is only speculation, because Ezra doesn't actually tell us what happened. Ezra focuses on something else. He wants us to see the people and their repentance. These people have recognized that their sin is great and grievous. And he wants us to see that they are prepared to repent, to turn from their sin, even when it's costly, even when it's hard. And actually, that's how the book of Ezra ends then. It's a somber ending in some ways as people wrestle with their sin, but it is also a high note. Consider where we've been in the book of Ezra. We've seen the return of God's people to their land. We've seen the return of God's temple in the land. And now we've seen the return of God's people turning back to God with their hearts. So, what does this mean for us today then? What do we do with this? There's kind of three things I want to say here today. And the first one is this. The first one is about marriage. Now, the big point of this passage is not actually anything to do with marriage, but it raises questions for us. So I thought it might be helpful to just touch on briefly now. Again, the key thing we need to remember when we read the Old Testament is this. We read the Old Testament today with our Jesus classes on. So if we put a Bible timeline up here, um, Ezra is there and we are here. There's about two and a half thousand years between us. And now can you tell me what's the big thing that's happened between Ezra and us? Hey, Jesus, that's right. Well done. You can pass Sunday school. Jesus is the big thing that's happened there. See, like the Jews back then, we today are God's people. But we are not Jews living under the Old Testament Jewish law. We are Christians living in light of Jesus. We are Christians living under the gospel promises. So as Christians, what do we think about marrying foreigners? Again here, the thing to remember, God does not have a problem with interracial marriage. 
In the Old Testament, it was never about race. It was about religion and evil religious practices. But, but perhaps it raises the question for us today. Should a Christian marry someone who isn't? A good passage to read on this is, is 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to go through the whole passage now, but if you do want to go home and read through it, find 1 Corinthians 7. But it, a couple of times, it, it, it asks some different questions that are helpful for us. At one point, it poses the question, what if there's a, a couple that's already married and one of them becomes a Christian? What should they do then? Should they just end it and go their separate ways? Actually, God says, no. As long as the unbelieving partner is prepared to stay together, then stay together. Don't get a divorce. Another question it talks about is, is you know, what if there's a Christian who's unmarried? Should they only choose to marry another Christian? Well, firstly, actually, the thing that, that 1 Corinthians 7 says is, consider staying single. It says singleness is good. Because it allows you to be single-minded in your devotion to God. Singleness is good. But it also says, if you have the choice, and remember, it's speaking into a culture here where most marriages were arranged. But, but it says, if, if you want to get married, and if you've got the choice, which most of us today do, and it says, marry someone who is a Christian. Marry someone who belongs to the Lord. There's probably a lot more to say on that. And if you've got questions about it, please do grab me later on. But I don't actually want to spend most of our time thinking about these questions because that's not really the main point of, of, of these passages, is this passage from Ezra. Let's, let's dig into what Ezra 7 to 10 really wants us to wrestle with. So the, the second thing from the passage is, is this. It's about community. Did, did, you, did you notice there's a communal effect here sin has a communal effect it doesn't just affect the person who's in sin it affects everyone around them as well that is why Ezra is so upset when he hears about these intermarriages because he knows if some people turn to worship other gods and be involved in those evil practices that they do that's actually going to affect everyone else Others will be drawn into sin with them. Sin has a communal effect. But did you notice also, so does godliness. So when Ezra sees the sin and mourns over it and confesses it, what happened? Well, well other people see Ezra and they were moved to see their own sin as well. They were moved to confess and repent themselves. I want to read to you now just from a couple of paragraphs from this book here I was reading this week. Um, it's written by a guy named Peter Adam. He's a Bible teacher in Melbourne. And he was reflecting on this kind of stuff. And this is what he wrote. He said, I well remember being profoundly discouraged when a significant Christian leader gave up his marriage and his ministry in order to take up a non-Christian lifestyle. I'd valued his books, admired his ministry, and loved his preaching. I was devastated. Then a friend of mine said to me, If you are so discouraged by someone who has given up, that means you are very encouraged by those who keep going. That was gold. 
I immediately made it a habit of life to praise God for all my friends who are still persisting as believers and persisting in ministry. And I've often used that realization to encourage people to endure and to encourage myself to endure. Sadly, we do discourage others by our sin. Thankfully, we can encourage others by our endurance. Friends, let's be those who endure in godliness and so spur each other on. A final thing from this passage then about sin. This passage is pretty clear. Sin is serious. It's something we need to treat seriously because its consequences are huge. If sin were just trivial, if it didn't matter that much, do we really think our God would have sent his only beloved son to die for it? No. Sin is serious. Yes, there is free forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. But sin is serious. And so we must treat it that way. How? What does that look like? We've kind of seen this in Ezra, haven't we? If we confess, what do we do? We, We confess our sins often to God. And we live in repentance, turning away from sin and turning to our God. Sin is serious, friends. So, I'm going to end by leading us together in a time of confession. We're going to pray a prayer together. The, the words are going to come up on the screen. It, it, it's a prayer owning up to our sin. Asking for forgiveness. And asking that God would work his power in us so that we can repent. If you're someone who wants to pray this, it might be the first time, it might be the thousandth time. But if you're someone who wants to pray this, please pray out loud. The words are on the screen so we can do this together. Here it is. Let, let's pray together, friends. Almighty and merciful God, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. There are things we should have done, but we didn't. There are things we should not have done, but we did. We have followed our own ways and the desires of our own hearts. We confess that we have broken your holy laws and we are sorry. Yet, good Lord, please have mercy on us. Because of Jesus' death for us, please forgive us. And please empower us so that we might serve you and live a new life to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.